the whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. It was basically a cube with inside of sphere where the points of the cube uh, were touching outside of the sphere. So this isn't anything that just is limited to the United States. It's a worldwide phenomenon. Hi everyone and welcome back to that UFO podcast and I'll say hello to everyone on YouTube because this is the first time I'm recording one of these knowing that it's also going to go on YouTube as well so I'm going to break the fourth wall and look into the camera for a second and don't plan on doing that again. So but again thank you for coming back to the podcast. My name is Andy and very excited to to bring this show to you today. Someone I've been in contact with for a while and the time has finally been right to get the the interview done so welcoming to the show researcher, lecturer, author of Triangular UFOs, An Estimate of the Situation, and last year appeared on our screens as part of Unidentified Season 2 on an episode featuring Black Triangular UFOs. It is, of course, David Marler. David, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Andy. It's great to be here. It's very good to speak with you as well. Um, do you know what? This this is basically something, I've not even got this in here, and I'm going to throw myself right off the bat by moving sure. a question right up. Someone has asked, uh, or a few people have, about um, your social media presence, and yes. why don't you have a Twitter account? Is that something that you deliberately don't have? Or Well, yes, it's actually by intent. Uh, I yeah. just... I find it so hard right now, Andy, as you found out, unfortunately, trying to get this scheduled between my work schedule, my family schedule, uh, my research projects I'm involved with, the various productions I've worked on, you know, time is so limited. And I, I will apologize to anyone listening that has emailed me in recent months who I've not gotten back with. Uh, I don't have an assistant. I don't have a secretary. I don't have, it's, it's really all on me to try to manage this. And um, as some of the things we'll talk about on the show, you know, there's been some recent developments that has definitely taken up a huge percentage of my time. So it, I, I begrudgingly actually signed up on Facebook uh, at the request of my publisher. He thought it would be a great idea. And it's just one more avenue of messages that I have to try to keep up with and manage. And so as it stands now, I can't keep up with the influx of emails and communications. And so I feel if I add Twitter to that, it's just going to compound matters even worse. So that, that's kind of my, my reasoning behind that. That, that's fair. You had a little bit of a clamor for, for people to get in touch with you on Twitter, but it's good to know you're on Facebook and there are there are other avenues people can contact you with sure. as well. I, I know what it's like trying to juggle the different social media platforms. <laughs> I, I'm 34. I don't consider myself necessarily old, but you know, it's just TikTok and all that kind of stuff now. It's just uh, it's, it's so hard. But listen, David, um, to get into the meat of the interview, uh, there was a lot of interest in this one. A lot of listener right. questions, a lot of comments um, from various different, uh, you know, the website, from Twitter, Instagram. Uh, Instagram, Facebook, all of that. So I want to get straight into things so we can fit in as many listener questions as possible as well. David, can you tell us a little bit, what is your background and what's gotten you into the subject of UFOs? Sure. I'll answer the last question first. Uh, You know, I was growing up in the 1970s and I was five years old back in 1973. And I lived in the St. Louis, Missouri area in the Midwest in the United States. And at that time, uh, you know, 73 was a pivotal year for UFO sightings across the United States. And uh, specifically in Missouri, there was a small town called Piedmont, Missouri. 
and they had had a, a wave of UFO sightings. And my father's family originated from that area. And so on summer vacations, I used to go down there and fish all the time and camp out on, on the river. And so my father and my older siblings were going down there almost every weekend that, that spring and summer to look for UFOs, as many people were doing. Hundreds of people were flocking down there because of all the media attention that those sightings had garnered. And so that was my first introduction, as I like to say, when I, re I can vividly remember at five years old hearing the term UFO and then asking my father, who was interested in the subject, but never actively, he, he never actively, you know, investigated until years later when I joined uh, MUFON. But uh, that was in 73. And then four years later, my sister had a close encounter with UFO with her husband outside Kansas City, Missouri. That's, you know, just terrified them, uh, literally spotlight over their vehicle uh, and complete silence, you know, no downwash. It wasn't a, a police helicopter, uh, completely silent, no wind, but this brilliant spotlight that lit up everything like daylight. And just as soon as the light appeared, it was like a light switch was flipped and the light went out. They still talk about it to this day. And my sister, I, I actually watch her very carefully. You can still see goosebumps form on her arms when she describes the event. It's still, even after decades have gone by, it still has left an indelible impression on her. And then in 1978, a year later, uh, there was another wave of UFO sightings north of St. Louis, Missouri, that again had, uh, you know, really generated a lot of media attention. So as I like to say, there was no pivotal moment in my life where I had a sighting or something really just, you know, uh, sparked my interest. It was really a successive series of events. And then in 1990, I heard about MUFON, that there was actually an organization out there that investigated UFOs. And my interest had never waned over the years. Uh, certainly, in my teenage years, I got focused on more uh, th more important things like girls and things like that, as we often do. But that interest was always there. And so in 1990, I joined MUFON. And that was really kind of my first exposure into actively investigating the subject. Excellent. So you've got and I've seen from your bio on your website, uh, davidmarlarufos.com, you have, uh, how do I put this? You've got your, your own professional career. Is that something oh, sure. you ever discuss? What is it you actually do um, for Absolutely. a day job? Is it related at all? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, completely contradictory to the UFO subject. I actually work in a very mainstream profession. I work in the medical field. Uh, okay. I'm a part of hospital administration at one of the local hospitals here in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And uh, my background primarily is in sleep medicine. Uh, I've, I've worked in the sleep med medical field for about 20 years. And so, uh, you know, very grounded uh, as far as just having a mainstream job, uh, again, completely different from my quote unquote nighttime job, if you will, uh, investigating and researching UFOs. And so uh, really try to keep the two separate, although uh, since, as you referenced at the introduction, my, my uh, episode of Unidentified, once that aired, Obviously, people within the hospital and people I worked with had seen or heard about that. And so that kind of opened up things a little bit. You know, I don't want to say I, I kind of hide in the closet, but I never try to bring my work to UFOs and I never bring UFOs to work unless people bring it up. 
I can totally understand that as well. Interesting though, like you say, you've got that medical and the reason I hesitate asking you that question is there's, there are certain people who don't like to discuss when their jobs are so different as well. Oh, so that's sure. really interesting. You've got those those two different fields. But sure. after you had had that experience and anyone was in the hospital kind of came up to you and I'm guessing it was, you know, David, I saw you on, you know, <laughs> A&E Network. I saw you on History. I saw you on whatever it was they were watching. What, yeah, was there anyone who came up to you and surprised you with an interest in the topic that you didn't know before? Yes, actually. In fact, uh, one of our uh, other members of hospital administration, he came up to me and said, hey, he goes, I, I saw you were on the History Channel. And he goes, then I, I kind of looked you up and I'm, you're really into this UFO stuff. And he proceeded to tell me about a UFO sighting that he had. And uh, it was just a year prior in uh, 2019. Uh, and so he begins to tell me about this. And this is one of the most grounded, level-headed individuals you could know. He holds a very responsible position within the hospital system. And he said, and by the way, I have photos. And so I said, really? And so he and I had worked very closely. Our offices were very close to one another's. And, you know, over a period of a year, a little over a year, we were working together. I didn't know about his UFO sighting. He didn't know about my interest in researching UFOs. And here we were working almost side by side all this time, not connecting the dots. And so uh, as a result of the show and him knowing of my interest, uh, I was able to interview him. And in fact, on my website, uh, if you go there, you can actually see I did a kind of a quick summary report, a recreation of the lights uh, based on kind of what I'm seeing in the photo as well as the two photos themselves, which show an unusual array of lights. And I'm not saying it's alien, just like any UFO, it's unidentified. Uh, we have Kirtland Air Force Base right here. It could be possibly something military that he photographed. I, I just don't know. But those are on my website and people can look at that. But yeah, so that was a very interesting uh, conversation that I had as a result of unidentified. Do you know what? I think it can be a very lonely topic uh, to have that when you're not on social media or discussing it online, that you don't have necessarily a lot of people in your immediate social circle or that you work with. I think for any of us and people listening that will be interested in the topic or they don't discuss their interest and it, it takes some conversation normally where there's some element of ridicule involved and one person comes up and does that. And I've had that as well of the, actually, do you know what? I, 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 you're into UFOs. I had a sighting or I had an experience or I had a, a someone I worked with who was also a radio, radio DJ, DJ in a past life, sure. um, not in a legitimate past life, but you know, in, sure. uh, and he talked about a sighting in Egypt where there were lights over the pyramids and sure. um, Cairo blacked out for a little while and right. it wasn't on the news. It wasn't reported and loads of people saw this. They saw what was happening and it just, it was as real as, you know, the lights were there. Everything went dark and then they came back on. And he's not what you would call a UFO enthusiast, but him and his wife both saw this along with everyone else who was in Cairo at the time. I've had a number of similar experiences like that at parties or social gatherings where someone will, on my behalf, say, well, you know, Dave wrote a book or Dave investigates UFOs. And exactly what you said, Andy, it's like suddenly, you know, the floodgates open. And I think it's it really speaks to the ridicule factor. People don't want to be laughed at. No one wants to be laughed at or ridiculed or belittled because they say they saw a UFO. Uh, but to your point, once they know it's kind of safe water and they can broach the subject with you and you're not going to laugh at them, you're not going to ridicule them, it really affords those individuals the opportunity, perhaps for the first time, to talk openly about it. And I've even had people tell me, um, you know, 
reading your book and being able to convey my triangular UFO sighting to you, it's been cathartic. It's been validating knowing that you have all these other reports that I'm not alone in what I saw. And so, you know, I, I, on a personal level, it really does help a lot of individuals for lack of a better term, come, you know, come to term with their UFO sighting by being able to talk to someone about it and get it out. I've had husbands and wives tell me what I'm telling you right now. I didn't tell my wife or I've never told my husband. I mean, that's a certain level of trust that you don't often encounter in life. No, and even just on that, Calvin Parker, who famously had uh, an abduction experience, he never told his current wife for, was it 30 or 40 years? And I interviewed him, and it was only when they went to a funeral and he wrote his name down on the the guest book. Someone noticed his name, and that's how his wife found out he'd been, you know, he was a famous abductee from from years previous. Absolutely, yeah. I want to ask, David, um, this is a niche subject as it is. It's a well-known one, but still particularly niche. But you you seem to have also gone niche within the niche, a bit of inception almost. And (laughs) you've not just yeah, a (laughs) sub-niche, yeah. So there's layers of niche. You've gone for triangular UFOs as an expertise. Why have you you zoned in on that particularly? Absolutely. Well, uh, first off, let me just state, as I alluded to earlier, I became actively involved in 1990. And for those that were in the subject at that time, and for those that have come on since, if you look back at 1990, around that general time frame, 89, 1991, one of the most prevalent themes or topics, hot topics within the UFO field worldwide uh, was, of course, the famous Belgian wave of sightings that really started in November 20, uh, November 29th, 1989, that, that series of sightings that occurred. Um, and I was captivated by that. Uh, I think that many of your audience members will agree, as well as yourself, triangular UFOs, it's a very specific geometric shape. Many of these reports have very specific lighting characteristics. This, as I like to say, is a departure from the majority of reports we have, which are simple lights in the sky. That could be a meteor, could be a firefly, could be a satellite. It could be any number of things. Those are what I like to call more ambiguous UFO sightings. I always characterize these triangular UFOs as unambiguous. Uh, There aren't many things that you can use as a prosaic explanation to discount these. In many of these reports, due to the low levels uh, sighting, sheer size, the very uh, uh, brilliant lighting characteristics that they display, it's really a matter of either this person saw what they said they saw or they're lying. They've they've just simply fabricated it. And so um, I was very captivated by the fact that the nature of the triangular UFO reports in Belgium at the time, more specifically, again, as many of your audience members would probably agree, also, the level of serious interest on the part of the, the Belgian media, and more specifically, the Belgian military, who were taking these sightings very seriously. And of course, later during that wave, we actually had uh, F-16s locking on with their radar systems in conjunction with four separate NATO ground-based radar tracking stations. So like I often uh, will mention with regard to these triangular UFOs, like many other UFO reports that are non-triangular it goes beyond just visual sighting reports. We have objective data, i.e. radar confirmation, that also bolsters some of these eyewitness reports. And so I was interested when I first got involved, I was captivated by this. I'm like, wow, like many people at the time, triangles? I thought they were saucers. I thought they were, you know, circular objects. And so I always like to say that was more of an academic interest. 
Fast forward 10 years later, January 5th, 2000, within about 30, 35 miles of where I lived at the time in the St. Louis area, we had what is now a famous case in Southern Illinois of a similar triangular object that was reported by uh, initially four, later five separate police precincts, very similar to what transpired November 29th, 1989 in Belgium, where you had multiple police precincts radioing each other. And so I was the lead investigator on that case for MUFON. And Andy, I have to tell you, I, I almost had goosebumps, much like my sister I was describing when she would talk about her UFO sighting. As I was sitting in those police departments, interviewing these police officers, the descriptions, uh, the characteristics, the sketches that they drew in many cases were identical, virtually identical to what was being reported 10 years prior in Belgium. And I knew these officers weren't privy to that information. They weren't really into UFOs, you know, quote unquote. And so that's what really began, at least in my mind, trying to connect the dots. If these sightings in Belgium were legitimate, if these sightings 10 years later in the United States were legitimate, and they're describing the same thing, what other cases might there be within UFO literature and UFO files that also mimic this? And that really started kind of formulating this idea of trying to put all this information together because there had been articles, there had been sporadic reports here and there on the internet, but nobody had really taken the time to focus on this subset of UFO reports seriously. And by seriously, I mean outlining this, this chronology, this history, and showing how they've been reported worldwide for decades. And that's really what was uh, the point of the book, uh, what would later evolved into essentially a book. And, um, and really, I have, to, I have to give credit to my friend and colleague, uh, Colonel John Alexander, who I met at a UFO conference in 2012. And John is not one to uh, glom on to UFO buffs or UFO believers. He's very serious. He's very objective. And much like uh, another colleague, Chris Mellon, you know, I like to say these people don't suffer fools. Uh, they like to surround themselves with people that are data driven, that are objective. And John came over and shook my hand after I gave my lecture at that conference. And I believe his exact words were, that's one of the damn finest presentations I've seen at one of these UFO conferences in years. And it began a discussion that weekend where he and I started discussing triangular UFOs, his interest. And on the uh, plane ride back home to Albuquerque, I began to think, should I write a book? Because I had three or four people come up to me after my lecture saying, I'd like to buy a copy of your book. Well, one, I didn't have a book. Two, I never referenced a book. They just naturally assumed I had written a book. And so it was a combination of the audience interest as well as my conversation with John Alexander that I thought, you know, I'd never thought of writing a book, Andy. I'll be quite honest with you. I never thought I'd be in this position. But I thought, you know, I do have a lot of rare historical material. I think I've gathered material that other people hadn't up to that point. And then on, on top of the level of interest that I was seeing on others, on the part of others, I decided maybe I should start putting pen to paper and actually trying to solidify all this information. And so that's what ultimately led to the book. And that book, of course, is Triangular UFOs, an estimate of the situation. And I'll make sure to put the links in the description sure. of the show for that for people as well, because it is something they should be checking out. 
triangular UFOs, it's something like you say, are normally seen at quite a low level. And I'm going to ask, uh, I'm going to share my experience with, or, or citing with one because it leads sure. on to one of the listener questions on guidance on how people should go about reporting or investigating sightings as well. So December 2019, I was driving home and I've shared this on the podcast before, but if you're a new listener, you won't have heard it. If you're an existing listener, let me indulge myself here for for a few minutes with someone who is the best person to talk to. So driving home around 6pm, it was November, December, so quite dark. And it's a a bit of a back road um, to a relatively populated area, but it's a very busy back road because you're avoiding the central motorway, which would be busy and everyone's coming home from work. And it is near an airport but I'm well aware of what an aircraft looks like in the sky, okay? Um, And I know you can misidentify these things. I am always looking up in the sky for UFOs, flying lights, you know, whatever it might be. But you see satellites, you see all kinds of things where where I live. It's quite a rural area. So I'm driving along along this road, and in the distance, not too far, I can see what I assume is an aeroplane. Two lights, just either side, and it's nice having the video so people can check this out as well. It's got two points, and it seems to be coming towards me. But as I'm driving along with the the trees beside me, I notice that it's not coming towards me. I'm moving towards it and it starts to get a little bit bigger. And again, I can still just see two points of light and you start to realise depth perception and the darkness can play tricks on you. But there are other cars driving about. This, This isn't moving. This is sitting still. I notice there's a van pulled over at the side of the road and the, the white van driver is leaning out and looking up. (laughs) <laughs> at this point so that there are trees next to this area and i would say the the trees f- between 50 and 100 feet tall this sure. would be just above the tree line but it's over the main road so as i drive underneath i look out and up and you can just against the darkness only because there were two points of light make mm-hmm. out the shape of a, a triangle mm-hmm. there was nothing on the front of that just the two points on the back and you would not have seen this had the the two lights on the back not been there, you could barely make it out against the night sky. So obviously me having the interest I have, and this is before I started the podcast, and is actually one of the reasons I started the podcast, I didn't get my phone out. I was driving 60, 70 miles an hour, which is probably, I don't know, 90, 100 kilometers. I'm not too sure of the differences. Um, Phoned my wife to talk through this, as, as that was the first thought that came to mind. I don't think a video would have done much justice anyway. So I got a couple of hundred feet along the road and managed to turn into like a farmhouse um, because I wanted to drive back and chase whatever it was or try and see it again. And I could see in my rear view mirror, these two points of light still just above the tree line. And again, other people would have clearly seen this. And as I'm reversing out, the the, the guy came out of the house with his wife as I just pulled onto their drive randomly. And (laughs) this this older gentleman asked me, is everything okay? And I went, I'm really sorry. I'm just, I'm just turning around in the road, but I'm I'm looking at that thing along there. And I pointed at these two points that were still there hovering. And he just looked along and said, Oh, would you look at that? It just shows you there is something else out there after all. And then said, (laughs) and walked back in his house. So the whole time my wife's on the phone, she's on hold. And obviously I'm just talking her through. There's something there. There's a black triangle sitting in the sky and she knows my interest in this subject. So she's obviously going, okay, so what can you see? All that kind of stuff. So I reverse out. And as I reverse to go back onto the road, a third light now comes on in what would be the front of the triangle. It's, it's really odd to describe it's like a sporadic flashing but it was mm-hmm. very rapid but not mm-hmm. not constant and then it moved off diagonally just over the trees Interesting. so once you clear those trees and go around the corner i'd just come round 
it's an open field as far as you can see, which then leads over to an airport. So I rushed along this road, 15 seconds, turned the corner, nothing. Or nothing that I could see anyway right. in a clear sky. Right. Is that something that you've heard of similar with, with other sightings regarding the lights, you know, the height, oh. anything like that? Well, you bring up a good point. Um, I, I will say I've never heard where people observe two and then suddenly a third one kicks on other than matter of perspective. If the, if the thing is turning, you know, and then you, you, you might see two initially and then the third one, but that one sounds like it was actually for lack of a better term flipped on while you were watching it uh, based on, you know, your angle, it, it sounds like and your visual perception of that. Um, but it does bring up an interesting point. You know, we do have that stereotypical three lights and maybe a red light in the center. That's kind of the iconic imagery, right, that we think of when we talk about these. But that being said, and for those that have already read my book, there are variations. Uh, you know, they're not 100% consistent in the narratives. Uh, there are those triangles that have been reported where there were no lights visible. It was just a, a black wedge with absolutely no lights whatsoever. And in many cases, the only reason the witness in, in those particular instances saw it was due to maybe street lights reflecting up on the underbelly of the object, or they saw it was a beautiful, uh, perhaps it was like a new moon where it was just dark, but you could really see the stars, except for this triangular <laughs> object that was blotting out the stars as it was floating overhead. There have been many reports, and I was just looking at one from the 1950s here in Albuquerque from Project Blue Book Files where it described the triangle being outlined by small little lights. So you could actually see the silhouette of the object because it was ringed in lights. And then there's a, a multitude of other lighting configurations. But of course, the most prevalent is what you just described with those three bright lights at uh, each point. And so that's a really interesting um, report for multiple reasons. I mean, one I, one, I would love to have been there with you, Andy, in the car, so I could have seen it. But also, what's interesting is many reports, and I might add a number that I've received from the UK, where drivers have reported being paced by a triangle. While they're driving, they're either in a convertible or they have a sunroof, but they're able to see or they're leaning out the car, which isn't the most uh, safe thing to do while you're rushing down you know, one of the, uh, the highways. But they would see this object, and it apparently was pacing them. It was keeping up with their speed. And there's been many reports over the years. In fact, there was one from 1972 that I came across in the local newspaper, not far from where later in 2000, we had that series of sightings that I described earlier, where a teenage couple uh, had a triangle over them. They increased in altitude to try to get away. And the object apparently increased as well because it maintained pace with their vehicle. There's been a number of historical reports where these objects are either following along the motorway or following along trying to chase or pace uh, vehicles. Uh, there was a case from 1978 I just came across. I believe it was Rosebud, Texas. I Don't quote me on that one. It's hard to keep all these cases straight. But uh, there was a, 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 an elderly couple, two, two elderly women that were riding in a vehicle, and they described this, this triangular UFO as pacing their vehicle. So it's a consistent narrative. And then to your point also, the fact that the airport was nearby. Many of these triangular UFOs have been seen either near military bases or commercial airports. There was a famous case in 1996 near Manchester Airport, uh, which I'm sure many of your uh, UK audience are familiar with already, 
um, where the CAA there in the UK investigated it for a year. This, this triangular UFO was seen by the pilot and co-pilot as they were approaching Manchester Airport and it nearly hit their wing. That's how close they estimated it was. And so we have this prevalence of these things that aren't shy, you know, compared to many other UFO reports. Uh, and, you know, very serious concerns obviously are raised when we have triangular or other UFOs in close proximity to commercial airspace. Now, that sighting of mine, I, I bring it up because one, you're one of the best people in the world to speak to on it. But sure. one of my listeners ha- had got in touch asking, you know, what guidance would you give to a civilian who's looking to report a sighting of their own or even investigate? Because there's there's what I would consider a pretty good sighting. If someone relayed that story to me, I would be like, Absolutely. wow, that, that's really interesting. But I reported it to no one. I mean, bear in mind, I did go on and start a podcast a few months later. But, sure. you know, most people, I guess, like myself or worldwide, they just don't go on to share those stories in any official capacity. Right, right. Many of the reports I received, uh, in fact, uh, you referenced at the beginning the, the History Channel's Unidentified. I received so many emails. It was ridiculous as a result. And I think that's when we were trying to initially coordinate something, Andy. And I was just trying to dig myself out of that hole. And it got to the point, unfortunately, because of a successive series of events that took place, which you know we'll talk about here with regard to some historic UFO files I acquired, it got to the point where there was just simply no way I was going to have time to do interviews with all of these witnesses. I think the last count was around 175 people that had contacted me. And I might add, you know, those were from the UK, they were from the United States, Canada, uh, you know, multiple countries uh, where these reports were coming from, and people stating, I saw this back in 1973. Um, they had uh, Dr. David Clark that was on the History Channel episode with me as well, and he kind of poo-pooed all of the uh, triangular UFO reports as people that saw Star Wars and they saw the Star Destroyer. So later, I don't, I, I can't follow the logic in this, but I'm just, you know, paraphrasing what Dr. Clark said. He thinks they went and saw Star Wars and now they're hallucinating and seeing Star Destroyers in the sky. Well, I had a number of people. I mean, I could I could certainly uh, argue against that, but I, I, I'm simply quoting the people that contacted me and they stated, oh, and by the way, that, that gentleman from the UK who stated that people just saw Star Wars and they're seeing this. I saw this back in 1973, four years before Star Wars ever came out. I had I had several people make it a point to state that, that I didn't see Star Wars until years after the sighting. So I have to take odds with what Dr. Clark said. And do you know what? I interviewed uh, Dr. Clark just late December on Rendlesham's 40th anniversary. Sure. And, and David certainly comes at the topic from a point of view of skepticism, which sure. I, I would still say is it borders on healthy because he very much comes at these events as they're explainable. And even though there are some inconsistencies necessarily in, in those prosaic explanations, sure. it's you've still got to open up and he still seems open-minded enough that there could also be other explanations as well, oh, which, which is totally That's fair. And, yeah. It's totally fair in this subject as well. You've got sure. to have that balance. And well, you've said, you've said yourself, David, like you've not yet on this podcast, talked to me about little green men and flying saucers. It's no. very much the facts and the data. I, I can't go there. Uh, you know, I, I'm not a UFO believer, quote unquote. Um, I'm simply looking at the evidence and I, I have always used the term UFO, which is now outdated since they're using UAP now quite frequently. I'm old school, so I'm, you're still going to hear me say UFO. It literally is that unidentified flying object. And that's where I think a lot of people 
have a misunderstanding with regard to true, serious, objective UFO researchers. When I engage in conversation, people say, well, I don't believe in extraterrestrials. I'm not talking extraterrestrials. I'm simply saying we have credible accounts of unconventional objects that are being seen in our airspace. Are they military? Perhaps. Are they extraterrestrial? Perhaps. Are they something else? Perhaps. We don't have to have the answers to allow us to go down this pathway of inquiry and investigation. Simply follow the information and the evidence and where it leads is where it leads. Uh, I really don't have any personal stake in this. Uh, if, if all of these came out and they were later revealed to be military, for example, many people postulated with the Southern Illinois case I investigated, well, that was probably military because it was senior Scott Air Force Base. If they roll out a, a, top, a then top secret aircraft today or tomorrow, I'm willing to concede, you know what? We can cross that one off the list. That's an IFO, it's an identified flying object. Until that happens, I think it's important to look at the data. And that's what I was trying to do. And really what I tried to demonstrate with the book, just with triangular UFOs, but we can do it with many other things. If you really take the time to look at the data, there do appear to be patterns. It's not just a random chaotic series of people concocting stories. They fall along certain narrative lines. And one important thing I like to point out with this too, Andy, if I might, is when you look at these accounts from the 50s, 60s, 70s, at that time, the zeitgeist, the thinking was people are seeing and reporting flying saucers. One of the best periodicals, you know, going back historically from the UK is Flying Saucer Review, one of my favorites. Um, many of those accounts were true flying saucers, you know, disc-shaped objects with a little cupola on top, a little dome on top. What's interesting about these historical triangular reports if you wanted to concoct a, a hoax or a false narrative just to embed yourself within UFO lore, if you're just basically orchestrating a, a false sighting, why would you report a triangle? You think you would shape it along the lines of what is being reported at the time, a flying saucer, if you want it to be widely accepted. Um, but that's not the case. We have these historical reports. And in fact, I've been going through some of the new files I've acquired, and I'm finding numerous uh, eyewitness reports that were taken by a civilian UFO groups, as well as newspaper clippings describing the exact same type of triangles that are being reported today. But some of these are going back to 1957. And it really stretches credulity to continue to go back further and further in time, thinking we have this technology, that that technology is ours when we've invested billions worldwide collectively amongst different countries, military and defense groups to develop what would be for all intents and purposes, inferior technology. Uh, you know, the F-117A, you know, stealth fighter. That's ridiculous to think that we invest all that money in that type of technology if we've had these triangles that just manifest magical capabilities. Uh, it just, I, I simply can't rationalize that. I have a list of, you know, bullet points I like to talk about or that I plan on talking through. And you've brought up that many points that I could literally go off on a hundred tangents here. So I'm doing my best. And this is for the listeners as well to not just turn this into me asking you lots of questions, which sure. I know sounds like what an interview should be, but I'm trying to keep it structured. No, that's but great. There's, there's so much I want to ask. It's organic. It's organic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, it's, it's uh, conversation is uh, going to evolve. There will definitely be a part two down the line because I can't keep David all day. But I want to pick you up on, you mentioned patterns there, okay? And it's really interesting. You talk about those old style sightings where you get the older looking UFOs and you get 
and it's like my my outro by the very talented Sean Cahill. It's minty hyperspace, and he says it's more like a hubcap, more like a hubcap, and not quite a saucer. But then you've got these objects that look like someone has thrown a hubcap across a camera. Sure. You sure. then get the the classic, and I'll, I'll hold up. You know the the logo I've got is just the round with the dome, which you talk Absolutely. about. That's the stereotypical flying saucer. Yeah, you yeah, then I, get the I, more yeah the more slimline ones. You then start to get you know aircraft carrier types. You get sure. triangles. You get you know, dodegahedrons. Absolutely. What do you think? Is there anything to these different shapes and styles? Because it almost seems some of these, and I don't know whether it's because they were potentially hoaxes, they're very sure. much of their time. Right, right. No, I mean, it, it's one of the pervasive questions, right, that we're, we're kind of uh, vexed with, if you will, in UFO literature is, you know, the varied shapes and sizes, to your point, Andy, um, you know, there was one that was shaped, uh, you know, like it, it was like an octagonal object and there's rectangular objects, all shapes and sizes are being reported historically worldwide. Um, you know, pick a shape. I guarantee there's been a UFO report <laughs> similar to that. Um, and, uh, you know, looking at that, though, I've had many people tell me, well, the, you know, you know, the reptilians fly the triangles and the greys fly the flying saucers. And to me, that's it seems so academic. It just seems so basic in your 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 thought process if you're just arbitrarily attributing things. And then, of course, if you're going to make a statement like that, you'd better have something to back it up, because I certainly in all my years don't have any evidence to support who's flying what. What I tend to think, though, is more along the lines of much like we do, and this is just from conversations with people within military and intelligence circles, when we design craft, aircraft, they're mission built, they're purpose built. In other words, you know, the F-117A, you know, it it was basically a tactical strike fighter, the B-2 stealth bomber, long range stealthy bomber. Uh, We have many different types of aircraft designed for many different types of missions. Uh, again, speculative on my point, but if we can apply our thinking to whatever these things are, assuming for just a moment that it's someone else's technology, I would, I would think that they're built and designed for whatever purpose they're there to serve. In other words, uh, you know, uh, my colleague, uh, Chris Mellon, who was on the History Channel with during that episode, he postulated the idea that perhaps because these have three points of light, that they're using triangulation, that they're actually mapping and scanning, which would, uh, you know, I, I follow his logic in the sense that they, they, they move very low, they move very slow, and are they scanning or are they collecting data? And to his point, using three data sets, you, you'd be able to really, with high specificity, be able to scan and map things. I think it's an interesting idea, and it, it falls along that same line why would you design a craft like this? Why would it perform the way it does? These are logical questions that we can ask. Uh, again, I don't like to go down the, the speculation slip and slide because, you know, I know so many people that they get lost in speculation. And it's kind of a house of cards in some cases where, well, if this, then that. And then this, of course, well, you pull one card out of that argument, the whole damn thing collapses. Yeah. And so I think we need to be very careful. But as researchers, we do have to start asking those questions, right? As long as we conform and make sure that those those ideas, those sets of speculation are based on the data, not based on our beliefs, but what is being reported and can we make a logical conclusion based on that? 
I'm going to come back to what you were talking about with Chris Mellon there because I got a lot of questions and comments on that very moment. And sure. I, I in reviewing the Unidentified Season 2, highlighted that as my, well, my favourite moment when Chris brought that up. That's someone yeah. who isn't just making a random statement. And uh, I'm going to presume here, which is dangerous in this subject, but he comes from a place of knowledge more than 99.9% of the rest of us involved in this subject. So that, that statement holds weight to me. Absolutely. Um, and, and can I just interject here Please, real quick, yeah. Ian? Uh, I, I did have the opportunity to speak with Chris about a year or year and a half prior to Unidentified even becoming a TV show. A mutual colleague of ours uh, and friend had reached out to me and said, you know, uh, Chris was asking about triangles and wanted to know who would be the guy to talk to in the UFO field. And he said, I gave him your name. Do you mind if I share your, your number with him? I always like to ask before I just do that. And they said, I would love to speak with Chris. And I was sitting in this very chair uh, about two or three years ago now, and we had the most wonderful hour and a half long conversation. And I just wanted to mention that because prior to the show and now subsequent to the show, we've developed a a good friendship and, and, you know, uh, respect for each other as colleagues trying to investigate this subject. I just wanted to say, contrary to popular opinion with television shows, Chris's interest is genuine with regard to UFOs, but specifically the triangular UFOs. He articulated that to me before Unidentified was even a TV show. And then uh, going through this most recent uh, collection of case files that I've been gathering, I've been going through and pulling more very tantalizing historical cases that people have never even seen or heard of. And I've been sending those to Chris. And he said, Dave, I really appreciate you keeping me abreast of your research. I really love to follow these historical cases. So I just want to mention for your audience that it wasn't just on TV that Chris pretended to have an interest in the subject. He is very interested in specifically the triangular UFO reports. That, that's great to hear. And just in case Chris hears this, uh, my DMs are open, Mr. Mellon, uh, at any time. <laughs> I, I do follow you anyway, of course, like everyone else does. Um, so listen, how did that appearance on Unidentified come about, David? You've obviously done other shows and documentaries in the past. Was it a case of you, you knew people within the field? Well, yes, uh, I actually was, uh, I was at work and I received a call from their executive producer and it was, it was funny. And he, since we were just talking about Chris, he starts telling me that, you know, we're looking to do uh, season two and, and are you familiar with season one? And I, I, I told him, I said, yes. I said, it's nice that you're calling me because I have to tell you someone that's been involved in UFO research for, you know, close to 30 years at that time. Now it's, it's 31 years, I believe. Um, I said, there are not many productions regarding UFOs that I like. I said, in fact, most of them are abysmal and really misrepresent the subject and those working in the field. I said, I have to compliment you. And it's not often I can tell an executive producer, thank you for doing a good job. And he said, well, it's also nice for me as an executive producer to hear that directly from someone like yourself, because we want to basically mimic and mirror the objective way we presented the subject in season one and season two. And my comment to him was, If you're going to do in season two what you did with season one, I can tell you unequivocally, I'm interested in assisting you any way I can. And then I said, and by the way, have you talked to Chris? And he goes, no. Why? I said, well, Chris and I talked like a year, year and a half ago. He has a a particular interest in triangular UFOs, which is what the reason he contacted me. He said that we'd like to do an episode on triangles. And he goes, no, I haven't, haven't actually had a chance to talk to Chris about this particular episode yet. I said, well, you need to because he's specifically interested in this. I said, 
he's familiar with my book. He said he read my book and he loved my research. And I said, you know, one, I said, not that I'm going to, to be demanding, but I said, if I agree to do this, I would really like to have Chris come out so he and I face-to-face could uh, share notes and ideas. And he goes, well, I goes, I think we definitely would have to make that happen. And ultimately, that's what transpired. So, yeah, they were looking for someone that was objective. And not to toot my own horn, Andy, but I, I've told my wife this many times. In watching season one and season two, and your audience can, can certainly uh, agree with me on this, I was truly humbled at the end of season two, because despite the fact they talked to UFO researchers, I was the only independent UFO researcher that they directly directly reached out to for information. You know, if you look at that show, most of it were military people that they were reaching out to. They weren't, it wasn't a who's who of UFO researchers on that series. And I was really the only one that they singled out. And I'm really proud to have been part of that and to kind of have that rare distinction that, you know, they didn't view me as just a U- another UFO believer. They viewed me as someone that was truly trying to take an objective approach and looking at the data. Yeah, there was very few talking heads uh, in that that weren't commercial pilots, military pilots, you know, soldiers. Absolutely. Like yourself and I think Tim McMillan. So not, not I just want to say, I, I was, and I, I you, you often hear that, that phrase thrown about, but I mean it sincerely. I was truly honored to kind of have that distinction and being part of the show. That episode, again, I've gone back, not just before I spoke to you, that that was my favourite in in the two series. I think largely down to one scene, that very impressive, uh, let's call it museum, research library, whatever you want to call it. uh, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And we're going to get on to those files just the next of you soon. But you obviously meet with Chris and... uh, such a frustrating thing as I found out doing this podcast. And I think the executive producer, was that Auntie Lippe? Uh No, I'm trying to remember. Was it one of the other right? ones? It was one of the other ones. And I, forgive me, his name escapes me right now, but I'll probably. No, no, that's fine. Um, the, in talking to Anthony, he talked about how much they film, but then how much doesn't make it into the show. And like you say, you had an hour and a half with Chris, of which five minutes maybe makes it in there. And it'd be great well, if that well, one came we, out. Well, we had an hour and a half conversation prior to the show uh, oh. being created. When he was here, we had almost an entire day, but you saw really? how little was used yeah. out of that. And uh, some memorable moments I have, which my uh, it was really nice. My wife and I were just talking about this, is the fact that when they were here, the weather was really nice. And we didn't really have much time to just chat, to really let our hair down and just have a personal conversation, Chris and I, without lighting crew, camera crew, sound crew all there. But we did have an opportunity to sit on my patio and we had lunch together. And that was really a nice moment that we had, maybe about a half hour. And then we we had a coffee break a couple of times in my kitchen and we were able just to kind of chat over coffee. And that was just it was really nice to kind of have that person personal connection with Chris. And again, I think it really solidified kind of a mutual respect we already had for each other. And then, as I mentioned, we still almost on a weekly basis keep in touch. No, that absolutely comes across and, and even that small section of the show that that because I don't feel there was many other people necessarily that Chris would have opened up to the way he did and again people can go back and listen to me discussing the episode on the review I was talking with my co-host Dan about there was almost a sparkle in his eye you're you're talking about and I can't remember the exact thing obviously black triangles sure. but Chris just seems to have this look in his eye as if I really want to talk about more than I'm allowed to or more than I can for various different reasons. But my listeners or anyone watching this would be remiss or very annoyed at me if I didn't ask, is there anything you did talk about that didn't make it into the show 
that you wish had or and that you yes. can share? Yes. Uh, I, I can't remember. It's been a while since I've seen the episode. So forgive me. I can't remember what was in the final edit versus what we filmed. But he was asking about how how we delineate what could possibly be military aircraft from the more unconventional. And I think if I remember, they 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 the way they edited it, it I did it made it sound like I said something, but you really didn't know fully what I said. Again, just because of the time constraints. Um, but I was talking about some of the unique characteristics, the ones that are you know high strangeness regarding the triangular UFOs. One I mentioned that I know didn't make it in the final edit was the fact that in you know admittedly you, you try to talk to the camera like you're talking to someone that might be hearing about triangular UFOs for the first time. Your audience is probably very well acquainted with the report, so this may be you know uh, common knowledge for them, but. Again, you know, when you're doing one of those television shows, you have to try to act like you're presenting to someone that knows nothing about the subject. But one of the characteristics I mentioned, and I even showed some case files that I had, are one of the unique aspects are these triangles that fly with the flat side as the leading edge. You know, admittedly, we have delta wing aircraft going back to the 1950s, 1960s, uh, where, you know, uh, rightly so, the point of the triangle is the leading edge for basic aerodynamic principles. Um, but many of these triangular UFO reports I have, and I might add, I referenced Flying Saucer Review. In 1958 and 59, there was two articles written by the same gentleman by the name of Watson, who described, it was, by, I, I might add, the earliest article written on triangular UFOs in Flying Saucer Review from that time period. And I, I believe I quoted extensively in my book. Uh, one of the characteristics he noted in the late 50s was the triangle moving with the flat side as the leading edge. And that just, if we're thinking conventional aircraft, conventional propulsion, that makes absolutely no sense, especially when not only do these objects have length, but they often sometimes have thickness. So as I mentioned, I think to Chris, and I think, again, it was edited out, that's basically like saying it's as aerodynamic as a brick as it's trying to move through the air. When you have this blunt, thick, flat side as the leading edge of the aircraft, and then you have this the, the apex of the triangle trailing behind so that was one characteristic. The other one was, uh, and I, I believe this was in there, where we talk about these things instantly relocating, witness observing it over on one side of the sky, and it suddenly zips to the other horizon, and they can see it. Um, is it moving so fast that we just simply can't visually track it? Or is it truly moving from position A to position B in an instant? And so there's many reports of that as well. The other one also is the uh, triangular UFOs morphing or changing shape right before the eyes of the witness. We do have a number of reports. There's one from Blue Book from Albany, Georgia, 1953 that I talk about, uh, where I might add, as bizarre as it was, the pilot sees this light that changes into a triangle, and then it subdivides into two triangles. And this is in the Blue Book report. Um, they found the, the, the pilot to be credible. But as I alluded to earlier, Andy, this was one of those rare circumstances in military files where they confirmed the Albany, Georgia airport had a primary radar target at the exact location and time of the sighting. So it was one of those rare radar visual cases, but one that demonstrated this morphing or changing shape before the eyes of of the eyewitness. More commonly, as people are getting more and more educated on these subjects, which can be a good thing, it can be a negative, and that's on all walks of life. The more people know, the more dangerous it can become. Exactly. We we conventionally talk about this subject and try and rationale things that we know, and we talk about flying, but like you've talked about, there's an argument that these objects, saucers, tic-tacs, triangles, whatever they may be, aren't flying. 
And when we try and pin that, you know, that they're moving a certain way, we, we don't know they move the way they do because we don't know what propulsion they use. Absolutely. And like you say, is it appearing? Is it existing? I spoke to Lou Elizondo two weeks ago and uh, people can check that interview out. I'm sure many of them have already because they're here listening to this now. Sure. But Lou talked about, when I asked him about his comment of, is it mankind or mankind's? Can you elaborate on that? And Lou gave a metaphor about a, a cigarette or cigar burning. And he talked about if you look at the part of this cigar that hasn't burned yet as the future, the part that's burned and turned to ash is the past. And then you've got this cherry, which is the part that's still burning now. Sure. And some of that overlaps. And potentially that overlapping is where some of these objects may appear. And it, it, that's where you start getting into like, realities and different dimensions. Interesting potentially. Metaphor. I love that. It, it was a very good one, yeah. And a lot of very talented listeners got in touch with different graphics and stuff representing it. Um, and again, that's someone like Chris and obviously someone who knows Chris very well yeah. coming from a p- place of knowledge. And so that was a really interesting one for me. So when you talk about triangles potentially appearing simultaneously, is it because they're not even using our, our understanding of time? Well, I, I think all bets are off as far as what might be at play with regard to physics, with regard to reality. And, you know, I've often speculated, and again, I want to underscore that I'm speculating, um, with UFOs in general, uh, I think that, you know, if there's been this cover-up, uh, really up until 2017, right, the New York Times article kind of changed yeah. everything. But I've often alluded to this 20 years ago, even, that if if governments, militaries are covering up UFOs, I don't think it's just because we have visitors from somewhere else or somewhere else, you know, some other time, perhaps. But I think because today, I would say even more so than 20, 30 years ago, people could wrap their minds around that, right? We just we just had the, the Mars rover land uh, yeah. just a couple of days ago. So we're wrapping our minds around the fact that this universe is vast, dynamic, and just absolutely incredible. So the thought of other intelligent beings out there, I don't think is going to shake the foundation of our society as it would have maybe 50 or 100 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people's perception of reality has changed. But, you know, going back to the 50s, 60s, if they started even then arbitrarily starting to connect these dots, like Lou was alluding to, and talking about the nature of reality, I don't think it goes beyond the simple discussion of visitors from somewhere else. It will fundamentally redefine reality as we know it perhaps, as we start to understand what we're dealing with. The average person, you know, many people aren't that educated, let's be honest. I mean, uh, across the world, many people are. uh, But people, in many cases, couldn't wrap their minds around that. For example, just, and again, we're we're going down speculation here. we're We're just throwing ideas out. If we're dealing with people or things from another dimension of reality, that is in a parallel dimension that exists with ours where these things can zip in and zip out. Well, yeah, they're not coming from, you know, vast star systems light years away. They're existing in a parallel dimension. Again, we're just speculating. Yeah. A lot of people would have fundamental issues with that. And again, I I always go back in in my book. I, I talk about this towards the end. I feel sympathetic towards military and governments of the world in trying to manage the UFO subject. Uh, I did a recent interview and I was, I was telling the, uh, the radio host here in Albuquerque that no military leader, no government official in any world government across the globe is going to stand up and acknowledge something that they can't control. We pay our tax dollars 
for them to be in charge. We pay the military, we support the military to have controlled airspace, to defend our airspace. You can't say you're doing that and then acknowledge that there is an advanced technology from where we don't know, why they're here we don't know, but we know they're there and we just wanted you to be aware of it. It completely debases their position of authority. Yes. Uh, you can't say we have controlled airspace and, and you're defending our controlled airspace when you have these UFOs or UAPs violating that airspace consistently. So I'd love to ask, David, now you are someone who likes the data, you like the facts, you like yes. to have multiple sources, no doubt, for Absolutely. any particular case. It's not just a photo, it's not just a radar contact, it's a sum right. of its parts, and that right. certainly helps. Is it hard, though, to not speculate when you have, and let's just go to the end of season two of Unidentified, when Chris Mellon, someone you obviously have a, a, a friendship with, a professional sure. relationship, and you respect, comes out right at the end of the series and says, in no uncertain terms, this is not Russian, this is not Chinese, this is not ours. And he he does mean, and it's and they've basically said now, him and Lou Elizondo, this is not human. Now, when they come out and say that, it's very hard to then go to, and let's just use the term alien, whatever that may be, it's right. not it's not what we would know as conventional humankind. Right. How do you then not speculate as to what this is? And is that, well, have, have you changed and allowed your, your view to be more fluid as the last couple of years have kind of gone by? That's a great question, Andy. I, I would have to say yes. Uh, I hadn't really stopped to think about it until you just now asked me. But uh, yes, g given their positions uh, you know, within the intelligence world, within the military, um, and as you alluded to, things that they know that they can't talk about for obvious security reasons, um, I, I tend, you know, and I, and I know there's a lot of skepticism, right, with re regard to them, their background. Are they telling the truth? Is this all part of a false narrative? I mean, there's all these these ideas and beliefs out there regarding, uh, you know, their involvement in the UFO subject. Um, and, until I have cause to think that they're lying or spreading disinformation, I believe Lou and Chris are exactly as they're promoting themselves. They, they have a genuine interest in this. And I know that there was a little bit of consternation on the part of some audience members I talked to that, that have seen the show where they say, well, you know, they're approaching this like these things are intent on on killing us or they're a threat to society. But you have to understand these men were in these positions and that's how they're wired. They're wired to look for potential national security threats. So, of course, they're going to look at the UFO subject through that filter, through that lens because that's what they've done for years. That, that, that's their background. And uh, again, in, in defense of governments and intelligence groups uh, of the world, um, and I, I wrote this in my book you know, years ago, and it, it, to me, it's just continually validated by comments that Lou and Chris make. Governments of the world, military leaders of the world have to view the UFO subject if they believe there is a reality to it, and an objective reality that's, as you mentioned, Annie, not Earth-based, for lack of a better term. We have to view it as a potential, and that's the key word, potential security threat. Because as I, I mentioned in my book, historically, we really don't see a lot, although there are isolated cases that you could possibly interpret as violent or malevolent intents, you know, where, you know, you name it, planes disappearing, planes being downed as they were pursuing a UFO, et cetera. There are those isolated cases. For the most part, though, the behaviors seem relatively benign with regard to us. Objects being seen flitting in the sky, flying around, buzzing 
military commercial aircraft without any harm being done. Um, but again, as civilians, we can speculate and we can sit here and believe what we want. When you're in a position within the intelligence community, you have to be analyzing any potential threats. You also have to be looking at the data as it looks today with understandings that what if XYZ within the equation changes tomorrow? They have to look at all these possible contingencies. And some of those have to involve what if suddenly this technology, the intelligence behind it, tomorrow turns overtly hostile. So, I mean, this is, again, why we pay our tax dollars to these people to help defend our country, to help defend our citizens. So I, I think people unjustly criticize them when they say, well, they're acting like this is uh, some type of threat. Potential threat, I think, is the yeah. key word there. It, it, we have to view it as that, it, especially when we seem to be on the bottom rung of the technological ladder. Uh, to Chris's point, you know, he doesn't believe that this is Earth-based technology based on the, the, the leap in technological innovation that these things seem to, to display. And so, again, I think these are just logical courses of action, and we need to be cautious. We can't be wide-eyed thinking that there are space brothers that are going to be here to save us. Uh, and like you say, that threat narrative, narrative is something I've talked about quite a lot. And people just, I think, have, have got the wrong end of the stick with it. Because like you say, if we all had a personal diary that had your most intimate, darkest secrets and thoughts and everything, you know, I'm not saying you do. And we had it in a very secure safe that only only you, David, could get access to that safe. And one morning you wake up and you open that safe. Whichever method you can open it, only you know. And I've left, I've left a note, or something has left a note on top of it saying, "Thank you for letting me read this." You yeah. would feel uneasy, you would Absolutely. have a lot of questions, and you Absolutely. potentially would feel threatened. And that's mm -hmm. all that they're, they're going with that we don't know. And, and again, it's muddy boots, as, as Lou's talked about in the past. That if someone was opening up uh, your house during the night. And in the morning, you wake up and you find a load of muddy bootprints everywhere. They've not stolen anything. They've not done anything. They've not sure. acted aggressively. You would feel uneasy. You and feel that, violated. Yeah, that's it. And yeah. uh, and in the, the sense of the word, these things are violating our airspace. Or yeah, maybe absolutely. it's their airspace as well. But that's speculation for another sure. day. Who knows? Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting, too, real quick, Andy, just to tag on to that. Please? I, I, can't, yeah. I can't remember when and where I heard this, but I know Chris has used the analogy that he was somewhat frustrated with regard to the fact that there were apparently different sources within the military, the U.S. military, collecting reports, but there was no centralization of this information. And mm -hmm. he likened it to what he saw prior to 9-11 with different intelligence agencies sitting on their siloed information, but we weren't connecting the dots. And yeah. so, as I've often said with UFO research, and, and I think Chris was alluding to this when he used, made that reference, you know, it doesn't matter what we study, rather the methodology by which we study it. Just before I move on from your meeting with Chris that I could talk all day about, when he did share, and you touched on it, the his thoughts that these objects are potentially surveying, these black triangles are surveying the planet or mapping the planet. Sure. What were you thinking at that time? Is that something he had already shared with you prior? Or was it something you were hearing at the time? I believe in the conversation we had, again, it was an hour and a half conversation that was really fascinating. I, I really was so happy he reached out to me proactively. Uh, I believe he had touched on that before, that that was one of the ideas that, you know, he was definitely entertaining, again, based on the data, looking at the data and then trying to make logical conclusions based on, you know, the reports and what we're what we're seeing in the data. Um, 
And uh, the only, I guess, concern I would have, or not concern, but looking at the data, uh, to your point uh, earlier, you were talking about seeing the two lights and then the third one kicked on. As I mentioned, there are some that don't have any lights. Uh, and I always thought that perhaps they were an inherent part of the propulsion technology. But if those three lights are some type of, let's say, anti-gravitic propulsion to allow the object to be suspended in the air, then my theory doesn't really wash when we have reports where there are no lights. If those are the engines, for lack of a better term, you think the thing would drop out of the sky. So in the later conversation we had, which was on camera there, as you alluded to, Andy, it did get me thinking that, you know what, Chris probably is closer to the truth going with that idea as opposed to what I had labored under the idea that it's part of the, the propulsion technology. Because again, doesn't matter what David Marler believes. It only matters what the data reflects. When I have seemingly credible reports of triangles with no lights on and they're moving and they're suspended in the air, then my belief that, well, that's part of the engine system, it falls apart. And so I think, I think Chris might be closer to the truth in that regard. Have you spoken to Chris since the appearance? Yes, yes. Uh, we email primarily because I, I try to be respectful of his time. I know everyone's vying for his attention right yeah. now. And uh, so I just try to, as I go through these historical reports, I try to just email those and keep them abreast of what I'm coming across. And, uh, and you know, my attitude is I will share my information with anyone because the more sets of eyes, the more brains we have applied to looking at the data, the closer we're going to be to the truth. You know, I'm... I am not the smartest guy in the room by any stretch. I never profess to be. I'm just a guy that has unique access to historical UFO information. And I'm trying to hone in on these triangular reports and going through that historical information. Okay, let, let's talk about unique access then moving on before we get to listener sure. questions. Sure. So I, I really want to speak to you about the rumoured uh, triangle UFO photo that we've been hearing a lot about. If you're on social media, you, you more than likely have heard about this. Now, a few months ago, the debrief, which is headed up by Tim McMillan, MJ Benias, mm -hmm. Micah Hanks, and a whole load of other sure. people contributing, great organisation, they yeah. um, dropped a, a bit of a bombshell but it quickly became a little bit controversial. They released a photo of what looked like a, an object. Now, we were expecting we'd heard about a cube-shaped UFO, right. but it turns out it is from a pilot's cockpit taken with a mobile device, and it looks to be some sort of Mylar balloon just yeah. because people managed to very quickly online find a Batman kid's balloon. Amazing yes. how quickly this works. So, and I love this when I post something on Twitter and I'll ask people, what do they think about a video or a piece of footage or a picture? I Absolutely. never claim it's, you know, Zeta Reticulans from whatever or a TR3B, which is my pet hate in ufology, um, you know, because we don't know. I just ask people for their thoughts. Now, Absolutely. first off, when that photo dropped, uh, did you see it and what were your thoughts? I did, and I, I was unimpressed because the description, and, and, and forgive me if I, I might not be remembering it correctly, the description provided in the article, to me, didn't match what I was seeing in the photo exactly. You're right, and, yeah. And I, I love what you just mentioned, Andy, is the fact, it kind of echoes what I just said, that in throwing it out there to your audience, it's like more sets of eyes, more brains, more people with varied backgrounds can look at this, and then as in the, the case you mentioned, I think they rightly attributed it to this balloon because I'm sorry, if it looks like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it probably is a duck. And it sure as heck has the exact same profile and signature of the, the balloon that they've made reference to on that. However, 
there was also talk beforehand and after of another photo that should be somewhat more spectacular. And I'm not saying anything untoward here because many online have referenced it appears to be of a black triangle craft yes. that has again been taken, I believe, from um, a pilot's point of view. Correct. Um, potentially emerging from the water or over water. Now, yes. from what I hear, the photo itself, um, and you've commented on it, so you obviously have heard of its existence, yes. is pretty spectacular. Yes. And as, as much as a photograph can be, because you would think in 2021, we are way past photographic evidence being something we really want to look at, given yeah. we're going back to FLIR videos and gimbal videos sure. of you know UAP. Right. We were looking for HD or 4K versions of these, which we are not going to get anytime soon. However, we're going backwards to photographs. But yeah. what have you heard about the photograph? I have to ask, have you seen it? Uh, yeah. And what would your thoughts be? I have not seen it. I've only seen the recreation as, as you know, circulating on social media, as you mentioned, Andy. I would love to see the photograph. Um, I, I've heard, uh, you know, the stories as everyone else has. I don't have any inside access to, you know, any other salacious details I could provide. I wish I did. Uh, I'm like everyone else, literally waiting for the day that hopefully it will be released. And, and I have had some people tell me that are much more in the know than myself that they feel it will eventually be released to the general public. That being said, you know, comparing that to the earlier photo we were just discussing, the one of the characteristics that really separates this one, again, just based on what I've heard and what you've heard, is the fact that it's not just an object, but an object with very specific lighting characteristics, very mm -hmm. similar to your sighting and similar to this characteristic stereotypical triangular UFO lighting configuration. So that's going to be much more interesting than just seeing this, this blob as we saw with the, the previous uh, object. Um, and you bring up a good point uh, because this inevitably comes up in my, when I do lecturing uh, here in the United States and in different you know, shows like this. Um, people will ask me about photographic evidence and videos, and I get people sending me videos and photographs all the time. And I don't mean to, to, to be rude when they send them to me, but my response is always the same. Thank you for sharing this. In many cases, I, I don't keep up on all the videos and, and photographs circulating out there on the internet. Thank you for sharing this. I hadn't seen it. However, I can't weigh in because I'm not a photographic video expert. Um, I can tell you, ooh, that looks neat. But I mean, from, from an informational standpoint, what does that provide other than my emotional response? Um, I leave digital photographs and videos to the experts. Uh, my friend, Mark D'Antonio, he is a photo video expert. I, I, I recommend people go to him, you know, especially if they're asking me, what do you think this is? I have no clue. That's not my area of expertise. I'm more of a historian and UFO researcher. Um, I, I never step outside, you know, the air, my area of expertise. And I'll be the first to tell you, Andy, that's not my area. <laughs> Let's get someone who is an expert in that area to weigh in. Because um, again, there's too much speculation out there, right? Many UFO researchers or people that call themselves UFO researchers will pontificate or spout out, you know, opinions when really they don't have the education or, or the, the acumen to back it up. Uh, they're just, you know, talking out their backside, as we say. And so... I leave it to the experts. Where I am now at with this subject is as much as a video or a photograph still interests me, I'm now at the point, just from speaking to past guests, people like yourself and, you know, anyone else in the community, it just gives me more questions. 
okay, so what other data comes along with that photograph that potentially gets released? Uh, were, were there radar contacts? How long was it tracked for? If it's coming out the water, was it tracked underwater? Is Absolutely. there a video? And, and that's what I want to know. And that's a big distinction with regard to this purported photo that will hopefully surface. And we can talk maybe a year from now about it when we have it in the public domain. Um, but that, if that photo exists, just being objective here, and since we don't know definitively, if that photo exists and if it surfaces through official channels, much like we see the, the DOD videos that have been released, what separates these from the vast minutia that's circulating on YouTube and everywhere else on the internet is we have an established provenance. The problem with UFO videos, as you know, Andy, and I'm sure your audience is well acquainted, there are a multitude of UFO videos and photographs floating out there on the internet. Who took them? Where are they from? When are they from? There, there was one, I believe, that was uh, purportedly filmed in Scotland, if, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, it, this is several years ago. And then I saw the video appear on several other websites attributing it to other countries. So even if people are well-intentioned in posting these videos, quite often they're wrong in saying where it was filmed, when it was filmed, who filmed it. And so as, as an investigator, no matter how tantalizing they are, we really can't use those as quote unquote evidence because we can't verify the legitimacy of the information. David, before we get to listener questions of which there's a lot of, so I want to try and get through as many as possible. You don't like to speculate, but I'm going to turn uh, your own statement from your website against you here and ask you to just okay. comment on it, okay? Sure. Sure. So, uh, despite the large percentage of misidentifications and hoaxes in the UFO data, David recognises what appears to be a core phenomenon beneath it all. What exactly do you believe that phenomenon is? Sure. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I alluded to this earlier. Uh, could these be time travelers? I'm just throwing out ideas that other yeah, people sure. put yeah. out there. Uh, are these time travelers from the future? Maybe. Are they from uh, another star system? Maybe. Are they from a parallel dimension? Maybe. And here's the other one, Andy. Maybe it's, you know, D, all the above. Or you none. Know. Or none of the above. Or none. <laughs> or none. Perhaps. It, but I do, as I stated on my website, I do believe there is a core phenomenon. If all of this was just all misidentifications, uh, a space age myth that's been created and perpetuated by gullible UFO believers, I wouldn't dedicate the time and money into investigating this the way I have for, you know, now over 30 years. Um, and it's, it, I, I like to characterize it this way though. You know, people often relegate us to just a bunch of UFO believers, tinfoil hat people. Um, the way I like to look at it is I don't believe all of these people, but conversely, I cannot look at, all of the civilian and military reports, many as we alluded to with radar confirmation, radioactive landing trace cases, uh, et cetera. You know, you can go down the entire list. I cannot summarily disbelieve all of these people. That's really where I'm in. And that's a good place to be. A lot of listener questions, a lot of interest in speaking to you, David. So let's get through as many of these as we can sure. before we do the quick fire. Um, so Walker got in touch and he says, I know David has a wealth of case files. There's a lot of talk about anti-gravity propulsion systems and UFOs or UAP craft. Just wondering if there have been any eyewitness accounts of gravitational lensing or light bending reported during sightings. There have been some uh, visual distortions around these triangular objects. Uh, and in fact, uh, I don't know if this case fits into the triangular UFO phenomenon, but the famous Phoenix Lights case 
people that describe seeing an actual object, they saw the lights and they saw this refraction and, and they even alluded to it because it was in Arizona. They said, it's like on a hot summer day in yeah. Arizona, you know, you see the, the heat waves rising off and it causes that ripple, that refraction of the bending of light. And uh, there have been visual distortions associated with some of the triangular UFOs. And there's also been many accounts where there's, you know, many people have attributed to this. I don't know. Could it be a bending of light or a manipulation of light around the object? But many people describe like this ionization of the air around the triangular object itself. And so I think there's definitely some atmospheric, let's just say, for lack of a better term, atmospheric distortion around the physical craft itself. But yes. Uh, Graham had the question, uh, looking through your book, it's clear that sightings of black triangles go back long before the 20th century. However, are there specific periods of time in the 20th century where they weren't seen? And he says he's thinking of World War II, where I can only find one report and it occurred in Northumberland, England, which is where he lives, which is where I live as well. Um, And if so, do you have any theories why that might be the case? And he also thanks Uh, you for years of diligent work and research as well. well well, thank you. I appreciate that. I would agree with him. Around World War II period, there was the, a, a you know complete shortage of triangular UFO reports other than the one I think he was alluding to. Um, that was a period where we really didn't see many. Uh, in the Project Grudge Files, Air Force Project Grudge, Grudge Files, there are some cases that I outline in my book under the chapter Military Encounters. So in, in the, the late 40s, they started getting reports uh, of triangles. But to his point, during the World War II era, and I would probably even say World War One. I, I don't think we had any reports of triangles that we know of, right? We always have to we always have to qualify that statement. They may be buried in a newspaper archive somewhere. Yeah. We haven't found them yet, and that's what I'm finding going through this new set of data. I've been recently uh, going through uh, a lot of old cases that just hadn't seen the light of day in many many years. Um, but uh, in the 1950s and 60s, I really start to see an increase, especially with this more recent set of data I've been going through more reports of triangular UFOs. And it's interesting. A lot of the articles state something like new flying saucer twist, discs outmoded, people now seeing triangles. So even they noted that, hey, what's going on here? There's suddenly a shift. Yeah. Uh, again, though, there's there's a constant theme of reports from the late 40s up till today, but obviously extremely increased frequency in the last 20, 30 years. And I can see that some of that might be military aircraft that are in the mix that people are reporting. Sure. Um, Dave comments that a phrase that was popular a few years ago was, if it's circular, it's one of, uh, one of theirs. And if it's <laughs> triangular, it's one of ours. And yeah. I pointed this out, David, before that one of my pet hates of ufology is people when they refer to it as TR3B, oh. whenever they see a triangular photo, because it's that whole thing of you do not know if it is no. military, you do not know. If it's Absolutely. from some other star system, you do not know. Right. Anyway, Absolutely. Um, well, but the, the serious point behind the joke was the implications yeah. are that the triangles are potentially reverse engineered craft. Where are you on this? And he's asked you to score it potentially out of 10, but just to give your opinion. Oh, sure, sure. Uh, you know, again, I don't know what state of the art aerospace technology is, right? We don't know what's being tested at Area 51 or other, uh, you know, secret locations. Uh, usually we find out 10, 15 years later, right? Like with the B2, the F-117A and things like that. So we can't sit here today unless we're involved in those projects and say definitively, what are we capable of? We meaning military across the military organizations across the world. So some could be military. 
to say it's back engineered technology, I know that's a very prevalent theme within the UFO mythology, as I like to call it, you know, hearkening back to Roswell and things like that. You know, we don't have any objective data to support that belief. It's a very strong belief. It's a very pervasive belief. But again, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say that because I have nothing to back that up. I haven't talked to people working on the inside. And to your point with the TR3B, it's we have to delineate TR3B from saying some of this could be military. T, when you reference the TR3B, as I do not, much like you, Andy, to say it's a TR3B uh, by default supports the, the, the statements made by a man named Edgar Fouché that put out in the 90s that he worked on this and it's a back-engineered alien vehicle. To say it's TR3B lends to the fact that you believe everything Edgar Fouché said, and I don't. Uh, I think there's been a lot of criticism about comments he made. Before he died, he really started going off the rails, posting some really crazy stuff on the internet. And uh, I, I simply don't believe his story. But I, but to be clear, I do concede some of this could be military, although I don't lend to the necessarily the, the back-engineered alien technology idea. No, no. And I've always subscribed to as well, if any of this is military, and that goes back to the Tic Tac UFOs, you know, Phoenix sure. Lights. I have a whole load of questions on, you know, Absolutely. where that leap in technology like Chris Mellon refers to as it's not just one generation. This is multi-generational leaps in technology, potentially thousands of years more advanced than we, we should be at. So, Absolutely. yeah, there's a whole other podcast and set of questions for that. Um, Adam would like to know if you've got any thoughts on triangular UFO cases or sightings from the UK, particularly. Any oh, yeah. patterns, anything that, again, would point towards military technology and whatnot? Well, I don't know about military technology, but I have had a number of reports from the UK. Uh, and I found it interesting when I was writing the book, there was a wave of sightings in uh, the area of Wales in 1983. And this was, you know, really prior to the famous Hudson Valley wave here in New York. And then what I found is in looking at the data, it seems like in general, if you look at the, the cases I outlined in my book, it started in Wales, and I say started, I mean, just more recent times, we had a huge concentration of sightings in Wales um, in 1983. And it almost seems, and I'm talking in very vague generalities here right now, Andy, but it seems as almost that sighting wave moved from Wales, swept across the Midlands, and then all the way down to the English Channel. It seems like overall, over a gradual period of time, that activity shifted to the point where in, uh, in the southern uh, portion of U UK there, um, we had a lot of UFO sightings being documented, triangular UFO sightings documented in newspapers there at the time, leading up to the sightings in Belgium, November 29th, 1989. And obviously by air, it's a hop, skip and jump if you're going to go uh, from you know the southern of England over to Belgium. Uh, that, that's that's nothing by air. And so I, it's almost like you see this gradual shift. And I think that's what's important in looking at the data. I, I like to call myself a big picture guy. If you start looking at the data and you see concentrations of activity and periods in time, you can see possibly, or at least potentially, how those patterns shift or how the activity moved or migrated from one area to another. And those are the interesting things. You know, it's almost like a weather map, if you will, but for triangular UFOs. <laughs> I'll just say thanks to Barry, Ash, and Derek. They'll ask questions, but we've covered them through other questions or, or comments sure. you've made anyway. So thanks to those guys. Chase Klutzky, who I don't know if you've worked with. Uh, I'm yes. sure you've you've uh, had Your experience. 
Yes, Chase is great and she'll be back on the podcast sooner than later as well. She asked, is there any particular piece in your collection that you value the most? Ooh, that's a hard one. I, I mean, unfortunately, you didn't see the entire collection on Unidentified. So there's a lot more than what you saw on camera. I would have to say probably one of the rarest pieces that I have is uh, a, an original 8x10 glossy Associated Press news photo of the famous uh, Battle of L.A. photo. Yeah. And this is stamped with the, the proper markings for Associated Press. It even has a red ink date stamp, February 25th, 1942. And it has the uh, news uh, teletype glued to the back from That's February cool. 25th, 1942. And I've got a lot of other original historical material on that case. But that's one of those that really it holds a special place on my wall here in my research room. And uh, I, it's really nice just to have an original from that time period. I think what stood out to me on the show was you had a almost I want to call it a statue, but of a black triangle, at a bit of an oh, angle yes. sitting out. Yes. That that was really lovely. I, I like that, and you can yes. you can send me that one day. I know you are donating your entire uh, collection to is it the <laughs> University of New Mexico? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I one of the issues that we deal with in UFO research, whether it's here in the United States or the UK, we have good people doing great research. And when they die, quite often, you know, friends and colleagues within the UFO field don't find out until weeks or months or, you know, years later. And then we try to circle back with the family and inquire, you know, what are you going to do with their UFO research files? And I'm sad to say, over many, many decades, when that has taken place, the response from the family is, oh, we threw all that in the trash as we were going through as things. We have lost more collections, more insightful research by people way smarter than myself that have been investigating this subject that literally went in the rubbish tip. And so what I'm trying to do is preserve not only my collection, but collections of other researchers, which I've acquired, which has helped build this library. Um, in fact, one quick one I'll just share. Uh, there was Dr. Leon Davidson, who was a researcher back in the 1950s here in the United States. He actually worked on the Manhattan Project. Uh, he's a, a Columbia University trained chemist and lived here in Los Alamos, uh, working on the Manhattan Project. He was involved in UFO research from really the late 40s all the way up until his death. And ostensibly, Columbia University in New York State has his research collection. Well, I looked online, the inventory lists, books, journals, etc. Well, I already have all of those. That would be redundant material. One of the things they don't note, but through a series of circumstances, getting in touch with a friend who knew someone, about three or four years ago, I was put in touch with a self-proclaimed trash dumpster diver who was going through a dumpster and found the original correspondence from Dr. Leon Davidson. And there, it's a veritable who's who of at least United States ufology from that time period, correspondence with Kenneth Arnold. Uh, there's a letter from J. Edgar Hoover with the FBI. There was a, a, a letter from signed originally uh, from then Senator Lyndon B. Johnson before he became president. Incredible historical material. And in addition to the UFO material, I have his, his college diploma, his high school diploma. I have some of his personal belongings. I have a certificate from the War Department uh, commending him for his work on the Manhattan Project. All of this was literally in a dumpster. And if it wasn't for this dumpster diver in a series of circumstances that he got in touch with me, I was able to purchase that collection and now it's preserved here. And to your point, 
all of this material, when I die, will eventually go to the University of New Mexico, where they will maintain and preserve it for perpetuity and allow anybody from the general public to come and do research and have access to those materials. It's, it's you know, a testament to preserving my material, but it's also uh, a way that I can honor those individuals who either gave or allowed me to purchase their collections and their memory and their work will be preserved. But I'd love to see the material myself one day, but ideally before it's passed on to university, David. Absolutely, um, and yeah, I'd love to see you. <laughs> listen, and I, I just want to touch on those files to your to what would be your right-hand side. Oh, yes. Uh, if people are watching on YouTube. Do you want to talk about those and that's something that isn't going to be lost to the you know, the, the dumpsters, uh, fortunately? No, I'm very excited about this. And again, I, I'm going to use the word humbled. I'm very humbled to be in this position right now. But this entire row of 15 four- and five-door file cabinets are filled with the world's single largest collection of UFO case files. And I've been entrusted as of November as the official curator for Dr. J. Allen Hynek's Center for UFO Studies or CUFOs. Um, it's the largest single collection per Dr. Mark Rodiger, their scientific director, good friend and colleague of mine. Uh, it's the largest collection, which consists not only of the Center for UFO Study files, which was founded in 73, obviously after Blue Book, um, but it also includes the historic NICAP files, the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, of course, led by uh, Major Donald Kehoe. So it also includes a lesser known organization called CSI New York, the Civilian Saucer Intelligence New York. They were formed in the early mid 50s and was really one of the early pioneering groups in the United States uh, collecting UFO reports. So and in addition, there's a lot of Australian files. And I might add, and I just had a, a friend I was telling this to, and he almost fell out of his chair when I told him this. He, I, almost, I almost could literally hear his jaw hit the table. I told him, I said, well, included in this is all of J. Allen Hynek's Project Blue Book material that he took with him when he left. And then there's a lot of Blue Book material. And I'm not talking photocopies. I'm talking original copies signed, wow. you know, signed by various individuals. What's interesting about this, though, as a researcher, as a historian, is Heineck, typically in red felt marker, would make commentary on the sides. For example, there was one I was looking at just the other day. It was a good case, one that I'm reinvestigating from 1964. I've gotten in touch with the relatives of the witness, uh, and they basically discounted this very good sighting as ball lightning. And you can see in J. Allen Heineck's writing, he crosses... Uh, ball lightning out and writes in bold letters unidentified and then makes other commentary about how he was very disappointed with the Air Force lack of interest and follow through on the case. That's so amazing. it gives us insights into Dr. Heinrich. That That is amazing. Uh, there were a lot of other questions on there as well and there's going to be a few of those posted on the, the Patreon with a little bit of an exclusive that David's going to do with me at the end of the show but that'll sure. be for the Patreons as well folks thank you for all those questions there were so many sent in and if I've missed one of them I'm sorry but due to the volume of questions particularly for guests like David and what I'm now getting on the show if you could email them to ufouapam at gmail.com that would be much easier for me to find them and not have to dig through seven different uh, media platforms for me to get them so thank Thank you, everyone who did get in touch or send those in. To finish off on the quick fire round, uh, I'm going to read out some uh, names, places, ideas, and just ask you for either a few words. If you don't have a sure. comment, of course, no sure. comment, or, or share your thoughts on them as well. So the first one would be Area 51. Mm -hmm. uh, great historic location for testing a military aircraft. Uh, I personally feel nothing to do with UFOs. 
Well, that'll be interesting. For my next one is Bob Lazar. Uh, Bob Lazar, uh, interesting individual. Uh, I'm not convinced of his story. Again, nothing to do with UFOs. <laughs> nothing, no. However, I, I was just on with some of my colleagues from UAP Media UK uh, on George Knapp's Mystery Wire the other night. And I always think, even with the inconsistencies, I have a lot of faith and respect for George Knapp. And he, oh, I do as well. And, and that story, that is something that very much leans me towards there being something to it. Yeah. Because George seems so invested. But, you know, who knows? But yeah, no, that's, that's a fair comment. And the next one would be something you touched on and a personal favourite of mine is the Phoenix Lights. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, dramatic case, uh, hard to discount given the, the volume of witnesses. I always like to state we call it the Phoenix Lights, which almost belittles the case. It should be called the Arizona Lights because sure, yeah. literally it traversed the entire state. And I always feel when we call it the Phoenix Lights, it almost suggests it was just a little local event when really it, it transpired across the state. Would you class that as a triangular UFO sighting? It was it was seen more as V-shaped, wasn't it? That what it people was reported. You get into an area where, you know, where is the cutoff between V, triangular, <laughs> yeah. boomerang? I, I wrestled with this writing the book. Um, I didn't want to write on it, though, because as I stated in the book, I'm not going to rehash cases that have been rehashed multiple times or written about in other books. I wanted to provide new information. So I actually left that to Peter Davenport with the National UFO Reporting Center to write on that. So it is included in the book, but I, I afforded that opportunity to someone else that was directly involved in that case. I think that would be my book I'll release then, David. I'll go with the niche of V-shaped UFOs, and I would ask that you don't write on those in your triangular cases and uh, <laughs> tread on I my territory. I tried to keep it as pure as I could. Yeah, no, that, that's fair. Um, next up, your thoughts on consciousness and what role that could play in, in ufology. Well, I don't think it should be ruled out. Uh, you know, I've always considered myself a nuts and bolts researcher, but that doesn't negate the fact that I don't recognize that consciousness and our, our human consciousness is not part of the overall equation. And that's what's beautiful about this subject, though, Andy, as you know, and your audience knows, each one of us brings a piece of the puzzle. I don't focus on consciousness, but there are good researchers who are doing research on that avenue. And that's what's wonderful is if we can each specialize, as we were mentioning our niches, uh, if, if we each can focus on these given areas and then come together and share that information, we're probably going to have a more holistic approach and trying to rationalize and deal with whatever this is that we're dealing with. But I think it's, it's definitely an important aspect that needs to be looked at. The next one would be Skinwalker Ranch. Yeah, uh, interesting location. Uh, certainly, you know, Skinwalker has... A, garnered a lot of notoriety over over the last several years right uh but I, I would like to say though skinwalker ranch is not an isolated place uh there's an area in missouri that ted phillips investigated for many many years i'd been there years ago before it got a lot of notoriety uh met with the landowner very strange occurrences occurring in this fairly localized area so and certainly in the uk you could probably cite areas that are equally strange and bizarre. There do seem to be these areas that historically have always had paranormal, and I'm going to say paranormal because it's sometimes these things, these things seem to transcend UFOs yeah. as we know it. Uh, these paranormal locations that have consistently been areas of activity. And uh, I've talked to my friend, John Alexander about it as well. And you know, when you bring up the Skinwalker, his eyebrow goes up. He's like, you know, there's some pretty strange stuff that's going on there. So uh, very interesting area for, cer for certain. 
Uh, three more. Uh, one of them is just a either or. Uh, do you prefer, and I think you touched on this, but UFO or UAP? <laughs> I, I, I'm trying to condition myself to start going with the new nomenclature to go with UAP. And uh, even in emails to Chris, I'll inter, inter, interchange UFO, UAP. Uh, I'm trying to break myself of the old habit. But you know, as a historian, it's hard because I'm delving into these accounts from the 1950s, 60s, 70s. And they're constantly referencing UFO. So it's very hard when you're mired in the historical reports where you see UFO consistently to then change, rewire my brain to start referencing them as UAP. So you'll, you'll hear me referencing them both ways. So I don't want to ask you about personal correspondence with uh, Chris Mellon, but does Chris use UFO or UAP or does he go with both? Ah, that's a good question. Um, I think primarily, I think he's referenced it as UAP. Uh, but I'm, I, I would be lying if I said he might not have referenced UFO in the past. I honestly can't recall. I have to pull up my old emails and take a look. Um, your thoughts on the Tic Tac UFO and the incident with the Nimitz Princeton? Uh, that's an interesting occurrence. Uh, I think that it's definitely something highly unusual. I, I don't subscribe, again, speculation. Let me preface that. I don't believe it's anything of our technology uh, based on the information that I've been hearing much like your audience. I don't have any insider information on it. I'm just reading and seeing what everyone else is seeing online. Um, but I think it's definitely, you cannot discount it. Some of the arguments I've heard like Seth Shostak and many others simply stating, well, it was just an aberration with the, with the equipment. Well, the United States military is not going to have equipment that is that faulty where it's going to be creating false signatures and, and false images I've heard other people say, well, there's this patent on this plasma weapon that can create a transient false infrared signature. Well, first off, if you read that in detail, it doesn't say that it can create a three-dimensional looking image. Mm -hmm. And it's transient, short-lived. These these sightings were relatively long duration, uh, especially the gimbal video. You're looking at this for a long period of time. And so the explanations that I've heard to just kind of dismiss it or say, well, it's easily explainable. I'm not convinced. I still think it's a, they're genuine unknowns. And I hope we will get more official analysis. The bad thing is we have nothing to back up the videos other than the videos themselves. Yeah. We know the UAP task force has looked at them. We know ATIP looked at them. We still don't have one page of official documentation as far as what their analysis is with regard to them. And the last one, David, your thoughts on disclosure? <laughs> yeah, disclosure, that, that's become a popular theme in the last, what, 15, 20 years or so. Um, I, I don't hold my breath with regard to disclosure um, there's, for a couple of reasons. We, disclosure is predicated on the government cover-up. And I think we talked about the cover-up and maybe mm-hmm. rationale for that. Um, and I don't believe in secrecy, but sometimes things need to be secret. You know, the things we throw out to the American public are now also available to our, our enemies abroad. Yeah. So we got to be very careful about what we're throwing out there. Also, you know, means of collecting intelligence information. You don't want to release that type of information in the context of maybe disclosing a UFO case. So there's, there's things that need to be classified. Let's just be clear on that. Um, but disclosure... People feel like we're going to lobby and create this groundswell of interest, you know, on the part of civilians to make governments release this information. The best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. And despite all the best efforts of UFO researchers in decades past, they were never able to create that groundswell or 
exert pressure on governments in the military to release information. Governments of the world in the military will release the information when it suits their needs and when they feel they have the answers. And this is the other thing. People talk about the government cover-up. I have a different opinion, and this ties into disclosure. Most people that talk about disclosure believe in the government cover-up, which they have covered up information. I think that's that's been amply demonstrated. I believe the cover-up is based on ignorance, though. Most conspiracy theories give governments of the world too much credit. And anybody that's worked in government or know people that works within government, it's very dysfunctional, right? It's humans. Um, I believe the cover-up is based on lack of knowledge. They know something is there, but as I alluded to earlier, they're not going to acknowledge it until they have a firm understanding and ideally have control of it. And I don't think they have a firm understanding of what they're dealing with, and they certainly don't have any control over it. So I think that is the crux of the quote-unquote cover-up, is secretly trying to understand what's going on. Do we need to combat it? Is it a potential threat? In the meantime, placate the public. Don't endorse it. Don't discredit it. But just let them believe what they want to believe. And so I think that's kind of the reality, if you will, of what's going on. And as far as disclosure goes, factoring back into that, they'll disclose when they feel the time is right, not because there's this groundswell of public pressure. I think they laugh at that in many cases. Um, And one last note I'd like to make, something that people never talk about when they talk about disclosure and the government cover-up is this. If we're dealing with an outside intelligence that's highly advanced, they're in control of the situation. If they wanted to land en masse, and show themselves where tomorrow it's not even a question of the UFO reality, they could do so, clearly. I mean, if you have superior technology, you're in charge. And they haven't done that. So we often badmouth the governments of the world for covering this up, blame the intelligences for not coming forward and overtly showing themselves, as opposed to skulking around at night and just showing themselves to a few isolated people here and there. That is what's behind the cover-up, are the intelligences themselves, whatever they that might be. And so I, I don't think we ever really factor that into the conversation when we're having this discussion. I, I would agree with a lot of that, David. And so, somehow, and I don't know why, I've used a few analogies about UFOs and aliens and whatnot to do with like, fish. So I'm going to use another one. And I think it's like, like you say, they're, they're in charge. It's like there's a lot of arguments over what you can fish, where you can fish, and it's all, you know, different countries and different waters. Imagine one day the fish turned around and said, actually, no, we want a say in this. That's potentially, we are, we are the fish in this situation. Uh, so I'm going to carry on my theme of fish analogies and I'll let people feed back to that one on I me as well. It. I love it. David, how can people follow your work and how can they get in touch with you and what's next for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, really, all of that would be on my website, www.davidmarlerufo.com. And uh, I try to keep up with the website, as I mentioned earlier, Andy, time is limited. And so I try to post what I can on there, uh, try to share any updates that I have. And uh, it's a great way for people to get my book, a great way just to find my email address if they wish to email me and uh, share information. Uh, I do collect reports. I try to refrain from phone interviews, as I mentioned, because of just the the volume of reports I received after Unidentified and still continue to get as people continue to watch the show through digital download, etc. But I ask if you do have a report, if you could just email a short narrative. And, you know, I take all of my emails and I I back those up. And so I I use those collectively, you know, in the context of my, my UFO research that I'm doing. 
David, it's been great having you on and I look forward to that part two down the line, uh, potentially when we get that triangle photograph released as well. Absolutely. Thank you. Thanks, David. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little I was about to abduct you, cuz. I jumped back and nearly kissed myself, and I climbed out the window after the elf, and I woke up in my bed, and there was something on my head, and everything was weird, and everything was red. I called up my boys, they thought this was noise, they thought it was a dream, they thought it was my toys, they thought it was my problems, and they think I should see therapy, and I don't know what it is, because it doesn't really scare me. Thank you.